Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Bob Goldfarb, who is the president of Jewish Creativity International, which is a nonprofit that works with Jewish arts and culture projects. He has a long experience with public radio, recording industry, publishing, and very involved with the Jewish community in a number of different ways, and has lived in a number of different cities, which I might ask him about a little bit later. But for now, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Bob onto the podcast is as some of you may know, Jewish Creativity International is uh, its who you know podcast fiscal sponsor, which allows our project to raise money and provide nonprofit tax status to our donors, which is fantastic and helps us with administrative pieces and that kind of stuff to bolster things like marketing or equipment, professional editor, helps really make this project more of just something that I'm doing in my home office and, and something that can reach a larger audience. So I'm very grateful to Bob and Jewish Creativity International for allowing us to operate as a project of theirs. And I really just wanted to hear more from Bob, not only about his own personal journey to this particular position, but about the organization and the work of fiscal sponsorship in the Jewish community. So welcome to the program, Bob. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'd love to just start with your own personal journey and how you got into this position. Well, it's a roundabout journey. For the first part of my life, never really thought of going into work specifically in the Jewish community. Many people do, of course, and they go to Jewish summer camps and they're active in their synagogues and they're active in Hillel and they take the next natural step, which is to look for work in Jewish life. I was uh, involved in Hillel, but I had never really thought of the Jewish community as my primary area of focus. I was much more interested in media, in my career, and uh, although I was always active in synagogues wherever I went, synagogues were the main outlet for my Jewish interests. And in fact, uh, later, when I tried to become involved as a Jewish professional, I met an obstacle, which uh, maybe some of your listeners have encountered too, which is that since at that point I had a resume of having worked for a while outside Jewish life, mm -hmm. when I applied for a job at a Jewish organization, they would say, well, you couldn't possibly fill this job because you haven't worked in the Jewish community. Now, aside from the fact that that's a catch-22, right. it also assumes that working for a Jewish organization requires some arcane knowledge, which I think is not really true. As in any industry, it helps to know the map. It helps to know the landscape, who's who, what organizations do what. But that's very easily acquired. Mm -hmm. As I've discovered going from one sector of the media to another. There's a slight learning curve, but really the most important skills are transferable. So it took me much longer to get into Jewish life than I had hoped. And yet I'm glad I stayed with it because it's also provided me with the greatest satisfaction. Wonderful. So tell me a little bit about your role with Jewish Creativity International and what it does and how it serves the community. It's an organization that was founded in Los Angeles in 1990. And its overarching purpose is really to use arts and culture as a medium for exploring Jewish identity and for building Jewish community. The organization was founded really out of the generosity of a couple. Their names are John and Ruth Rauch, and they at first devoted their own resources to building up this organization, organizing encounters between 
American Jewish artists and Israeli creative artists, sponsoring the work of some artists and also serving as a fiscal sponsor. They, in time, were able to build up the organization so that it had several partners, uh, largely in Los Angeles, some also in San Diego, that presented performances and other kinds of events for the general public, of course, all related to Jewish culture. Unfortunately, John Rauch passed away unexpectedly in, I think it was 2006. And I had been a longtime admirer of their work and a friend of theirs. And to make a long story short, when the time came to think about the future of the organization, and there was a question really of whether there would be a future. To make a long story short, I ended up assuming the role of leading what was then called the Center for Jewish Culture and Creativity. And the purpose remains the same. In fact, in the years since I've been directly involved in the organization, We've done a number of programs in Los Angeles that involved, I think we called them mini residencies, where we would bring an artist from Israel. And when I say artist, I don't just mean visual art, but a a creative artist in any medium, bring people from Israel to meet with organizations in Southern California, especially those appealing to younger Jews, and have face-to-face encounters, which I think have a strong effect on people. When I lived in Jerusalem, we were fortunate to have as a partner the Royal Conservatory of Music of Canada, which has an ensemble that's known for promoting the music of composers, not all Jewish, but mostly Jewish, who suffered in the Shoah, some of whom were murdered in the Shoah, and whose music was largely forgotten. So we put together a series of events in Israel. It culminated in 2011. It consisted of a film series, concerts, of course, lectures, a historical exhibition. There was an international conference of scholars who discussed their research into these composers. And it was a tremendously gratifying experience. And so in addition to being a fiscal sponsor, from time to time, we've been able to do things that affect the public and that also reach the public through the media, which is, of course, an interest of mine. One of the concerts that we arranged in Israel, as a matter of fact, was broadcast live across Israel, Kol HaMusika, the classical music channel of the Israel Broadcasting Authority. That's great. So yeah, I used to see from the website, there is a piece of the history that really does focus on Israel and Israeli creative relations with with sort of the states. How has that shifted in your personal experience with the organization to be sort of this fiscal sponsor side? Was it always the case that they did this kind of work or was this a newer piece that somebody said, hey, this is an important piece we should take on? Uh, That's a great question because it zeroes in exactly on both our history and the evolution of the Israel-America relationship. From the very beginning, from day one, the founders of the organization wanted to bring together what they thought of as worldwide Jewish culture. In a sense, the philosopher who informed this whole undertaking was a Chad Ha'am. You know, there were three Mm -hmm. streams of Zionism and a Chad Ha'am, whose real name was Asher Ginsberg, articulated a vision of cultural Zionism, an international Jewish culture. And John and Ruth Rauch were really animated by this vision and hoped that by bringing together creative artists from different parts of the Jewish world, that they could sustain this international quality to Jewish culture. And so from the very beginning, there were artist gatherings 
in Los Angeles and in Israel to create just the sort of sharing and the creative collaborations that face-to-face meeting makes possible. And I think it's one of the most important things we can do, and I hope we'll be able to do it again. So you don't do that much activity of that kind anymore, is that what you're saying? It all depends on funding. Yeah. And the cycles of interest on the part of funders go up and down with respect to culture. There was a time when Jewish culture was a priority for the organized Jewish community. Many people will remember there was a national foundation for Jewish culture that existed for something like 50 years. In recent years, it disbanded, not because of a lack of need, but really because Jewish culture had established roots across the country and the value of a single central organization was less acute. But it also reflected a trend in funding, which Mm -hmm. was that the idea of Jewish culture was less appealing than some of the other initiatives. You know, in the time that I've been involved in active Jewish life, Jewish organizational life in particular, I've seen the focus go variously from summer camps, charter schools, of course, birthright trips, immersive experiences. And interestingly, the current interest in immersive experience is, I think, a reason that arts and culture can once again become one of the priorities because immersive experiences include exposure to music, to theater, to video and film. And of course, the visual art, that kind of experience, especially when it's accompanied by an encounter with a creative artist, can have the same sort of impact as the other immersive experiences in nature or in Israel or in any of the other forms that it now takes. So I'm optimistic that we will be able to return to it because it has such an impact and because there is such a felt need to create experiences, especially for younger Jews who aren't especially interested in the traditional institutional approaches to Judaism, but who are interested in exploring their Jewish identities. Right. And it seems like what you've been able to shift towards in just sort of the general world that we live in now, as opposed to something that's local and able to do local events, as something that's fostering kind of these new projects, things that are maybe online. I know you guys are the fiscal sponsor for eJewish Philanthropy, which I'm not sure what their audience is, but I'm sure it's large that's able to touch a number of people in these cultural ways, not only with the contributors that are offering to it and their audience who are consuming that content. The model that I think anyone would have seen, you know, 10, 15 years ago in the way that we connect people to their Judaism and to culture. And one of the exciting things from where I sit is the sheer number of people who have really wonderful ideas that express themselves through Jewish creativity, whether through education or performance or public exhibitions or any of the other ways that reaches people. I come into contact with these people all the time and there's something powerful in seeing the connection that people make between their Jewish identity and wanting to express it through some artistic medium, partly because of the power of art, but also because for those who think that the only trend is for people to drift away from Judaism, Mm -hmm. there is certainly that trend. But there's another trend, which is that for the people who decide to care, who decide to define themselves in part through their Jewish identity, that art remains a fertile way of doing it and a way of doing it that can, as you suggest, have a powerful impact on audiences. 
And I was actually surprised when I first started looking into getting a fiscal sponsor, just how few and far between and how difficult it was. And that's why I was so happy to come across your organization. There are some that do it on the local level for their local communities, you know, things that benefit New York, things that benefit LA, things that benefit Chicago. But when you're talking about programs like mine, they don't really benefit any regional area that are really looking at whatever audience wants to consume that offering, right? It doesn't seem like something that's really embraced by the Jewish community beyond what you obviously are doing to allow for these smaller independent projects to flourish. Is that your experience or do you feel unique in the field? Well, it's uh, we're certainly not unique. There are other fiscal sponsors, but I think we may be different in that we have a specific focus, which is Jewish arts and culture. Our mission is based on that. You know, if our mission were simply bookkeeping, then I'm sure we'd be providing an important service there as well. Mm-hmm. But it has less substance to provide simply a process. And I think the fact that we believe in something and stand for something, namely the power of culture to touch people and move people. I think that gives us a special sense of purpose that an organization that simply exists to perform the clerical functions might not have. So what do you think the impact is? I mean, you've talked a little bit about it, you know, exploring these cultures. And I've talked with some previous guests about the difference between these boutique organizations that have a very focused purpose in what they're trying to complete and the more established organizations that have kind of a wide breadth of services that they offer trying to provide a lot of different things and a lot of different services. So you kind of have this duality in our community at the moment, and you could argue which one is more successful or less successful. But this duality, right, between these two types of organizations in the Jewish community, and here you are trying to promote something very specific. Do you find that it's easier for you to try and promote that within these boutique communities? Or are you also finding interest for promoting Jewish arts and activity and culture at JCCs or federations or these kind of more established, overarching parts of the community? It's a great insight that there is that spectrum from small to large and the fact that things work differently at a different scale. And I think the experience of arts and culture is similar to that of any uh, valued program in the Jewish community, which is that it can work both ways. And in fact, it has to work both ways. Think of examples from the retail world. That's the way most of us come into contact with products and services and how they're marketed. And sometimes you need a gigantic enterprise like Facebook that spans the world and has many languages and an enormous amount of money. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need a local website that fills you in on perhaps what's going on in your local Jewish community. And having, let's say hypothetically, a meta site that brings together all of the local Jewish news sites, whether from press organizations or from federations or any of the other sponsors of of Jewish news online, would that add anything? Probably not. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that is inherently good about scale in, in that case. The same thing is true with arts and culture. Sometimes in order to have the critical mass to be able to succeed, you need to have a large organization, a national organization. But a lot of the best work in arts and culture is done at JCCs. Just echo one example that you mentioned. There are a number of JCCs around the country that have outstanding presentations throughout the year. They have Jewish film festivals and Jewish book festivals, and they could not provide the same kind of service if there were some national entity that coordinated all of that being close to the community and being close to the community's distinct interests is a real asset there. And yet at the same time, going back to what I 
was talking about a little while ago with the Foundation for Jewish Culture. I think there is a vacuum now at the national level. There's no national conference for Jewish arts and culture. There is no national coordinating body the way there is in most fields of endeavor. Usually there is some sort of lobbying organization or professional association that serves people who work in the sector. And that's one thing that's missing. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that Jewish Creativity International could do to help fill that void, I'd like to explore that because I think when there have been conferences, there was a conference that existed for several years called Schmooze, which its attendees I think appreciated very much. I certainly did when I went to them. That does leave a vacuum in communication, in sharing ideas, in forming collegial relationships. And as valuable as the local organizations are on their own, I think all of us would be stronger if we also had some central point that would help disseminate information and bring people together regularly for the exchange of ideas and for forming valuable partnerships. Right. And there's something to be said, as I mentioned before, the mediums we now have for the projects in which you are fiscal sponsor for to do this work, not locally, right? Not in person. And then the value of then bringing those people together, bringing artists together, bringing dancers together, bringing cultural people that do this work together in person to collaborate, to understand, to learn, and then to maybe have something online where you can go to kind of like a Facebook page or something and say, Hey, you know, I'm a Ketuba artist. And I just started this new project. And, you know, I'd love to hear from some other Ketuba artists, that, you know, about how they've worked this out and that there's a lot of power to that community as well. So you feel like we're lacking a Jewish cultural community at the moment. I, I think it would be helpful to have the sort of counterpart to Jewish federations of North America that coordinates on mm -hmm. behalf of federations. There's the JCC Association, which is a gathering point for uh, JCCs. In religious life, you have the Union of Reform Judaism that provides a place for the exchange of ideas and for people to meet, I guess, every other year at Biennial. And of course, through uh, subsidiary groups more frequently. It's a norm. And the fact that we don't have it in Jewish culture, I think, doesn't strengthen our field. And I think it would strengthen our field if we were to be able to come together that way. Right. So I want to just kind of focus on a little bit more on the projects that you work with out of pure curiosity of how and how long have you been with Jewish Creativity International now? It's just about 10 years now. About 10 years. So you definitely have a, a long history of knowledge as to how things have worked. Does it feel very revolving door-ish or do when people come to you and want to be fiscally sponsored, does it feel like they stay with you in partnership for a long period of time and are able to be successful? Or is it that the pro projects that are coming to you, it's a difficult field and some do well and some drop off? How has that experience been? Well, you, you, I think, have uh, already predicted the answer because it's all of the above. Right. And as you can understand, some projects by their nature are limited. It's If someone is producing a film, for example, mm -hmm. they go through the process of creating the film and they edit the film, they post-produce the film, they arrange with the distributor to distribute the film and they coordinate with film festivals and so on. And then their work is done. And so they aren't raising money for it any longer. Their work may continue to be available on DVD or online or whatever, but they essentially are done with the project. So that has a sunrise and a sunset. There's some projects that are not naturally limited in that way, where they provide services from year to year, but some of them grow. 
and decide that they'd like to go off on their own. Mm-hmm. And they feel that they're ready to take on the administrative burdens and also the governance burdens. Because if you form your own 501c3, you have to have a board. You have to have board meetings. You have to keep minutes of the meetings. You have to file tax returns. And anyone who's filed Form 990 knows that that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And some people say, well, we, we really have continued to grow. We see a bright future. And so we're going to go off on our own. There are others that say we're growing, but who needs the aggravation? We just have the fiscal sponsor. Those reasons are very particular to each project. And one of the pleasures really is to see how projects get to the finish line or else find the path to growth find that they're able to scale up and others that they just continue to provide a valuable service year in, year out at a kind of steady maintenance level and to be a part of that kind of success as well. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Nonprofit Learning Lab. Membership in Nonprofit Learning Lab has many benefits, including posting on their job board, having access to learning circles, leadership opportunities, a mentorship program, scholarships, and much more. Learn about membership in this wonderful organization at nonprofitlearninglab.org slash join. Nonprofit Learning Lab, connecting, supporting, and developing individuals seeking to lead the nonprofit sector. Before returning to my conversation with Bob Goldfarb, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Stephanie Rhodes, Executive Director of the Slingshot Fund. She discusses with me her work in philanthropy and innovation. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. I will tell you that every year I get calls from people who are new to the field, foundation professionals who tell me that they want a copy of the guide to orient themselves. I've heard stories from organizations who've gotten calls and emails and letters from those foundation professionals who are looking into trying to get the family expanded into Jewish innovation in a new way. Organizations will call and tell us when they know that the guide has helped them to secure new funding. And we also know that the people who participate in the Slingshot Fund, every year there's a story or two or three of an organization that the fund chooses not to grant their money to. Individuals who are engaged in the fund wind up calling the organization afterwards and saying, I really love what you did and I want to make a gift and get involved with what you're doing. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Stephanie Rhodes in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Bob. Mm-hmm. And so you offer advice or, I mean, have you ever had to tell somebody, hey, I don't think this is working out so well <laughs> for you? You know, it's really the project's decision whether it's working out. Yeah. Because one thing that I think is really important, at least to the way we conceive of the relationship, is that the welfare and direction and all the artistic choices, of course, but really everything about a project is in the hands of the person who spearheads the project. And it's not for us to second guess them. As long as they follow our procedures, and those are the basic ones necessary to have a paper trail for transactions, financial transactions, and to comply with whatever regulations there are. Aside from that, it's not really our place to judge an organization. If they were to do something, and I can't even think of an example of this, if they were to do something that is grossly inappropriate, we'd have to have a conversation. Right. But, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that the people that we work with are idealistic, well-intentioned, serious, honest people. And I can't 
really think of a case where we've had to step in and say something is really grossly wrong here. Right. And how many projects can you estimate over your 10 years have you worked with? The number keeps growing. Uh, We're up to a couple of dozen now. I think when I became involved 10 years ago, there was just a handful, I Mm -hmm. I think maybe five or six. And of those, some come and go. It's funny, the relationships that are established early on sometimes become very enduring relationships. Mm -hmm. There are People that I work with that were longtime participants in one way or another in this organization's work, going back almost to its founding, and who come back from time to time and say, well, we've got this project that we want to do, and how about if we uh, do another fiscal sponsorship? I just had one of those happen this week. People who have been involved really from the earliest days who have a musical project in mind. That's great. And we're doing another fiscal sponsorship. The pleasure of really being here for people, not having any really competing ambition or purpose, it really simplifies things tremendously. That's wonderful. That's great. Wait, so I'm going to pivot back to yourself personally. And as you've mentioned, you've worked both in the Jewish community and in the secular world. And I'm curious from your perspective, what's the biggest difference between the work that you did before working in the Jewish community and now that you work in the Jewish community? The word that comes to mind first is purpose. You know, I've been lucky. I've worked in purposeful organizations for a long time. I was executive director of an organization that represented classical music composers, American Mm. living classical music composers, and which was also a publisher of their music. It's called the American Composers Alliance, very much a nonprofit organization and one with a storied past and which had a sense of purpose that is very similar to what I feel we have at Jewish Creativity International. And one of the joys of being involved with that organization was very similar to what I've said about uh, our organization, which is that working with composers who dedicate their lives really to creating art uh, is inspiring. Even when the role that we have or that I had in that organization is really administrative. There are also organizations that are Ultimately, about profit, I worked for a time for Time Warner, to take an example at the other end of the scale. Time Warner, of course, is a gigantic organization. I worked for one of its classical music labels called Teldec. And there was a sense of purpose there, but it was always conditioned by how many units you could sell. And sometimes what sells well is not necessarily good. And you can understand the word good in artistic terms or even in moral terms, whether it's good for people to be exposed to that music, whether it's an elevating experience or if it's something less noble. And yet, with a large organization that has resources at its disposal, and especially with a well-organized large organization, it can be inspiring for the administrative half of my brain to see how well thought through the process is, to find how professionally people behave, how deep their skills are. And I think there is a trade-off. I think in Jewish life, while there are many deeply skilled people and people with great leadership qualities, often people who run Jewish organizations, especially the smaller ones, have a personal vision, a deep commitment. It's their love of what they do that motivates them. 
and the professional skills are secondary. I think we need all of this. I think this is not a criticism of anyone. It's not a criticism of profit-making organizations, and it's not a criticism of people with a dream who devote their lives to touching perhaps a relatively small number of people, but doing it through programs that in their way have a profound effect on everybody who is touched by them. I guess I come away from the range of experience that I've had with an appreciation of both the tremendous ability of human beings to be able to create and to be able to work with one another to accomplish great things. And at the same time, an appreciation of human weakness and how all of us have our strengths and our weaknesses and how important it is to honor what's good and to recognize that the work that other people do the work that may take place in circumstances different from our own can in its way be at least as respectable and honorable as what we ourselves do. Great. Well, that's wonderful advice, even though I haven't gotten to that part yet. <laughs> that's great. It's a great way of looking at it. So in a similar vein, you grew up in Connecticut. You lived in Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Jerusalem, and now you live in New York. So quite the traveled nomad. I don't want to say what's the best city, but where did you thrive the most? What was the best community that you experienced in all those places? I guess it depends what you mean by thrive, because maybe it's just the way my mind works. But I think similarly about the places that I've lived to the way I think of the places I've worked. When I lived in Boston, I had a wonderful experience. It was college and afterwards, and it was a great city to meet people who cared about ideas. There are so many schools there, so many well-educated people there. And as a cultural center, because cultural is obviously one of my interests, it was a wonderful place to be. Los Angeles was very exciting for me as a completely different experience. As someone who grew up on the East Coast, it had, and I have to say still has, a kind of magical quality to me. There's something about the landscape of Los Angeles there's something about the quality of openness, open-mindedness mm -hmm. that I find on the West Coast. There's a sense that things are possible. There's a desire to experiment. And there's something remarkable about Los Angeles as a different species of city. It's not at all. And I'm like, not paying you to say this. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I have enormous fondness for Los Angeles. And I'm happy that I have reasons to be there because of my work with Jewish yeah. the International. Of course, there's no place like Jerusalem, and I would like to spend more time there. It was really a transformative experience to live there. And I have to say, whenever I'm in Israel, but in particular in Jerusalem, it always seems to me that things matter more. Hmm. That in America... Things are relatively easy and relatively untroubled. Every place has its troubles, I suppose. But I think Israel has greater challenges in many ways. And the sense, I go back to what I keep talking about, a, a sense of purpose, the sense that Israelis can't take for granted who they are and where they live. And the sense that although superficially their lives may look like ours, that there is something different about the near universality of military service. There is something different about it being a Jewish country that runs on Jewish time. And I think all of us, all Jews, are fortunate to live in an era where the state of Israel exists. It is a true miracle. And I think it's an even greater privilege to be able to live there. Great. That's wonderful. So no best, just all different life experiences of where it took you. I believe in appreciating goodness wherever you find it. 
So where's your goodness for New York? How long have you been in New York now? Well, I've been in New York off and on. I first moved to New York in 1990, but I moved away and back twice. So this is my third time living in New York. And you know what they say, you can never go home again. It's never mm. the same experience twice. But New York is the most dynamic Jewish center in the United States. So many organizations are here. There are so many different kinds of Jewish observance and ways to participate in Jewish life that it's really unlike any place in the world, I think, outside of Israel. And for that alone, that would be enough. But then since I'm someone who has deep cultural interests, both inside and outside the Jewish envelope. The sheer range of culture that's available in New York, I like walking and to be able to walk from my apartment to some of the greatest museums in the world, mm -hmm. to great concert halls, to all kinds of cultural activities. There's more than any person can possibly do. There's more theater than anyone can see. There's more music than you could possibly hear. And that richness, I think, makes New York uh, the place that I hope to spend most of the rest of my days with, I hope, some room for time in Israel as well. So uh, maybe that's at best in a personal sense. But I have to say, living in smaller cities like Seattle, where the Jewish community is more tight-knit, you don't have as many choices, but there's an intensity on the part of people who choose to be involved in the community that is really special. So there's a value that I think is important in Jewish practice called Hakarat Tatov, uh, recognizing what's good. And I guess that's my outlook towards my work, towards places that I've lived, towards things that I've done in general. So that sounds like fantastic advice again. <laughs> you've already given us a couple of great pieces. Is there any advice that you have for our audience, maybe even just thinking about more broadly people who are looking to start new cultural projects, who are thinking about culture in their own Jewish community and how to bolster that, just Jewish professionals in general, any outstanding advice that notwithstanding your everything is good? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the most important fact about the times in which we live is change. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I don't mean it in the sense that everyone needs change or wants change. Of course, there are things that dissatisfy all of us and that we want to remedy. That's not the kind of change I mean. I really mean the tremendous shift in the Jewish community that is happening in our time. It's the weakening bonds of community. It's the weakening of communal organizations. We all know that organizations, large and small, have to struggle now to attract members, donors, participants. And it's only going to get harder. The other side of the coin about the flourishing of creativity and seeing so many people with great ideas is that you have many more different entities competing for people's attention and for people's money. And so it's, it's a struggle with sheer numbers. But more than that, I think over the next 10, 20, 30 years, there will be a dramatic change from the dominance of a number of large institutions to many smaller institutions. And fundraising is harder for many smaller institutions, and having the critical mass to do great things will be harder to achieve. So anyone who is planning to work in the Jewish field in that period of time, I think has to be aware that the infrastructure that is there now will be very different and it will happen sooner rather than later. You know, there's a generation of benefactors to Jewish life who have enabled enormous things to happen in the last 
30, 40, 50 years. This has been a kind of golden age for the ramification of Jewish organizations, Jewish experiences. But the kind of attachment that those benefactors have had to the Jewish community is not the same kind of attachment that the next generation of donors has. Mm -hmm. For one thing, the next generation is as interested or more interested in causes that transcend Jewish life, very important causes, uh, fighting climate change, broadening and protecting human rights around the world. Those are just two of the things that many people care about and want to support with their generosity. But that means that the amount of money that's available for specifically Jewish causes will be less. And there's even a feeling that there's something vaguely insufficient about supporting just Jewish causes. Mm -hmm. There's a sense that if you don't have an outlook for all of humanity, that somehow that is too parochial perhaps too tribal. And one can argue whether that's good or bad, but I think that is what's unfolding before our eyes. Right. And anyone who wants to work in the Jewish environment has to be aware of that and has to be ready for challenges, some of which we can imagine, but some of which we can't even foresee. Mm-hmm. And we're susceptible to the larger economy. Uh, lots of Jewish organizations suffered in a lot of, of ways during the recession. And that's not a unique experience, right? Things might be good now, but there's always a downside on the upside. And, you know, when that happens, some organizations close their doors and it's sort of a renewal process with those scarce resources. The more we spread ourselves out, the less there is in times of scarcity. That's certainly true. And at the same time, we can't do much about the macroeconomics of the United States or the world. But what we can do something about is Jewish life. We can think about it in an anticipatory way. We can have in our minds an idea of what to strengthen, what's most important, because we do have to make choices, and to continue to work towards whatever our vision is. I know it can sound discouraging to say that things will be harder, but for people who do have a commitment and passion for something that benefits the Jewish community. This is a time when that kind of energy and commitment will be more needed than ever. Great. So my last question for you, again, something on a personal note, you've been doing this work uh, with Jewish Creativity International for quite some time, and you've expressed sort of your love of cultural things, especially everything so close in New York for you. And you're very involved with Jewish life as well, which you can read on your bio on my website. How do you keep it all balanced? How do you find that balance in your personal life and work life and keeping up with with everything and the the demands um, and still enjoying yourself? I think the answer to that probably changes every day. I think there are days where I know that I've spent much too much time in front of my computer screen. And there are also days where I feel that I've wasted precious time on things that don't really matter. So I guess I try to be forgiving of myself while still recognizing that time is limited and that unconsciously we're all making choices all the time. Mm -hmm. And to be more aware and more intentional about the choices we make, I think is the best solution. There's a huge industry in helping people manage their time. And the reason that that industry, like the, the diet industry, will never go out of business is that people will always need help organizing time because we all are tempted to do things that may not be exactly aligned with our priorities. You know, as they say, sometimes we're our own worst enemies. So I think the best thing is not to look for a magic formula, but just to be thoughtful 
and to be purposeful, give yourself permission to have fun, and at the same time to recognize that we all have a responsibility to the people that we work with. I don't think of it as task-oriented. I think of it as responsibility to other people. And I feel that if I can keep in mind how people will be disappointed if I don't answer their email for several days, or if there's a delay in sending a check that's important to them, that's what keeps me on track, visualizing how it will affect other people. And I tend to give a lower priority to the things that are either less urgent or especially less human. Because there are things that I'd like to do, I would like to spend more time reading than I do. But that's a responsibility to myself. And if I can be more organized about my reading, then maybe I'll get to read more of the things that I want to in the limited time I have. Ultimately, for me, it's keeping in mind the other people that enrich my life and to whom I have a responsibility, personal life as well as professional life. And if I feel that I'm doing what I can to meet my responsibilities and to make them happy, then that's good enough. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. Any last words, any last reflections on our conversation today? I don't think so. You've asked great questions and I hope my answers have been helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time on the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. When I started this project, I had to really think about where I wanted it to go and how I would get it there. With any good project, I knew it required funding, and I knew I didn't want to deal with all the nuances that came along with that. Jewish Creativity International was the only place I could find that would allow me to raise money and be supported by an organizational structure. This organization supports Jewish music, art, film, broadcasting, multicultural expression, historical preservation, publications, theater, on and on and on. They are the one place for all of these entrepreneurs, all of these people seeking to grow their project and grow their idea. Jewish Creativity International offers that opportunity to them. Even more fascinating is the shift that the organization has made over time. Originally created to promote Jewish arts and culture, by putting on Jewish arts and cultural events. As time went on, the organization shifted to the model it uses today. There's no more worldwide Jewish culture. There's a Chicago Jewish culture, an Israeli Jewish culture, a young adult Jewish culture, a teen Jewish culture. Each project that Jewish Creativity International now promotes is unique to serving the cultural connectivity needs of their population like this podcast for Jewish professionals. And I don't know if I would say that I'm a part of the international Jewish culture, but for some people, this is how they will connect to the larger Jewish community. And the fact that this organization was able to understand that in order to continue to promote Jewish arts and culture, that fiscal sponsorship was the way to promote and support that. This organization does fantastic work we are very lucky to be able to be a part of that and to have them supporting us. There are no other podcast announcements. We've got interviews lined up for the rest of this calendar year. So we're very excited to be bringing you lots of different voices and lots of different sectors as we move this project forward. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound. Our podcast partner for this episode is Nonprofit Learning Lab. Please go to their website, nonprofitlearninglab.org, to see all the wonderful resources, not only for you, but for other staff members in your organization as well. 
You can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast. It's who you know, the podcast.